You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. At the end of a year that saw Russia's annexation of Crimea, the rise of ISIS in Iraq and Syria, and a Republican conquest of Congress in Washington, Here at Worldview, we thought we'd look at some other turning points in 2014 that could have reverberations well into the future. To help me identify some, I'm joined by our regular contributors, Irish Times foreign policy editor Patrick Smith and columnist Paul Gillespie. You're both very welcome. Paddy, let's start with you. Uh, Have you identified a turning point in 2014 that others may have missed? Well, I I think that the... um one of the interesting uh, developments that has taken place in the course of, of, of 2014 is a change in the nature of the discussion of, of economics and, and uh, uh, the, the change in the framing of the economic uh, debate. And I think that one of the most significant things that happened during the year was the publication in uh, America and then Europe of the English version of Thomas Piketty's book on called Capital uh, in the 21st uh, century. It's been described variously as one of the watershed books in economic thinking and um, uh, very strongly supported by most economists, very strongly criticized by, by uh, conservative uh, economists. And uh, Piketty's discussion of the way in which uh, wealth in contemporary uh, capitalism is becoming more unevenly distributed and income is being unevenly distributed is very important in a number of respects. The discussion of, for example, uh, low pay has become central in many of the the capitals of the West, in in Washington, in in London, uh, the minimum minimum wage is now a central uh, issue in in discussion. And at the other end of the the scale, discussions of, of taxation of wealth, uh, whether it's the mansion tax in, in, in Britain or uh, taxation of, of the very wealthy in, in, in America. This discussion of inequality has become much more central to the economic debate than it was. And Piketty is in part responsible and part symptomatic of, of, of that, that uh, process. Uh, it's a reality that he, that he describes and is described elsewhere that the, the period um, from the time of Reagan and Thatcher coming to power uh, saw a significant shift in, in the, the way in which uh, the rate of profit, he, he, sorry, he, dis, he argues that the rate of profit when it declines, below, when it rises above the, the rate of growth, means that you you have an intrinsic shift from uh, the the poor to to the rich, and that period since Reagan and Thatcher came to power has seen um, throughout the Western world uh, an increasing wealth accumulated by the very rich. Now, most of Piketty's book is actually a historical analysis of how this phenomenon has been uh, observed through centuries of uh, of economic history, but the part of the book that received most attention, perhaps, was his prescription. And his prescription, or his suggested antidote, was a wealth tax, a tax on wealth. Paul Gillespie, has there been any uh, enthusiasm for that uh, remedy uh, since the publication of the book? Not a qualitative shift, I think. Uh, it's, it's partly a technical matter. 
in that the uh, notion of a financial transactions tax, which is very close to what he's suggesting, was criticised technically by, by a lot of economists. Uh, and then you've got the a separate kind of discussion, which has become much more active, and I presume is related to the Piketty phenomenon of the, corporate, the tax of corporate, corporate profits. Um, so it seems to me that the precise prescription he was making hasn't yet taken off. It was pitched at the global level, uh, and there was a lot of criticism of this, saying this was semi-utopian or perhaps utopian. Uh, but in fact, uh, it may be making more progress at the, let us say, the European level, at regional level. Uh, and there is a, a willingness in the EU to discuss doing the matter, uh, doing it uh, almost as a coalition of the willing amongst a certain smaller group. And in countries like Germany, you would have a, a very lot of enthusiasm uh, for pursuing this line of taxation because their so-called black zero commitment to balanced budgets uh, leave them with actually rather few other tax bases to go after. So I think it's a slow burner, uh, but it, we may see more of that next year. And, and Paddy, when you say that uh, that this book uh, has been influential in, uh, in influencing the discourse, are you talking about uh, an intellectual discourse or or something that actually manifests itself in the political life of nations in well, the I West? In, in what we were talking about there in terms of the debate about taxation, in terms of minimum wages and things like that, it's, it's very practical in, in, in its effect. But I think it's also done something else which is very interesting. Uh, it has provided for the left a particular critique of capitalism that it has lacked in the last few years. Uh, the left became, in the post-Thatcher period, uh, bogged down by Blairism, uh, which was basically a complete concession to uh, the, the the ideas of, of right-wing uh, market e economics. And uh, the left has been drifting for some time, and it seems to have found in, in the discussion of inequality, in Piketty's ideas, a, a new ideological uh, platform. And it's not just a moral critique of capitalism. That's really what is quite important. It's a critique uh, of, of the efficiency of the system, of contradictions within the system, that, uh, that, that the left can now say, actually, what we're concerned about is not just waging class war for its own sake, but the fact that f if you depress wages to the point where they are depressed, for example, in Ireland, uh, you you depress the demand for consumer goods. You you make it impossible for capitalism and for markets to regenerate and, and come out of austerity. So it's provided a, an argument for a whole section of society and coming at a time when if we are, we're moving from the post-crisis uh, phase of 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 the economy into one where we're looking at at how uh, to to grow the economies again. And of course, Piketty uh, favours capitalism as a system, and not only that, but he also argues that the uh, proportion of the economy that of economic activity that's taken in tax uh, has probably reached its limit. So he's not actually arguing for an expansion of the state in any way. Do you share this view, Paul, that uh, that this is uh, a fruitful route for the left now after uh, the years? I do. Uh, I, I, it, 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 it puts inequality centre stage. It puts that period from Thatcher and Reagan that Paddy mentioned centre stage. It documents it so well empirically, the, the issues and the fallout in terms of wealth distribution and income distribution and economic policy that I, I, I really do. I think this, this provides a way out, certainly for social democracy, uh, to go beyond the third way uh, 
impasse that Paddy was talking about into something into something much more constructive. It also has a, a global and regional purchase beyond the nation state. Yes, I think that that's central to the argument. Is you, you talked about Piketty's solutions being uh, global, and uh, they the. Uh, there are actually on a whole lot of planes, and corporate taxation is one of them, there is a growing realisation that solutions are going to be only found if they're done collectively. And so the OECD's work on the taxation of corporate profits and, and the, the way that corporate profits are hid, hidden abroad is very much coming out of a similar uh, type of, of discussion. And I, I think we're moving into a new phase of understanding of the role of international cooperation and, and the like, and that, that, that is part of what Piketty is, is doing. He, uh, as I say, he's not responsible for it entirely, but he is uh, epitomises, if you like, that movement. Uh, Paul Gillespie, your turning point for 2014? Well, it's, it's interestingly related to Paddy's. Uh, I was very struck during the, the year and writing about this, watching the growth of, uh, to some extent, they're, they're more left-wing parties than we're used to, social democratic parties, uh, but particularly the growth of parties such as Podemos in Spain uh, and Syriza in Greece. Uh, um, some people would say perhaps the way that Sinn Féin has consolidated in Ireland. Uh, there have been a similar breakthroughs, not as dramatic in Portugal. We're talking about the southern or peripheral zone of Europe and the way in which, uh, as a result of uh, the fragmentation of existing political party systems, uh, falling away of membership, a big crisis in these party systems, suddenly as a result of the economic crisis, some of the stimuli that Paddy was describing, you're getting a realisation of a need for a very different kind of politics. Uh, it draws on a whole set of different actors, including uh, in Spain, there's I think 57 or something like that percent of people under 25 are unemployed. It's it's 50 percent of people under 30. Quite a remarkable figure. In Italy, the figure is 44 percent, I think, roughly speaking. In Ireland, it's only half that, but it's still significant. And these people are getting drawn into a new kind of politics, along with uh, with a whole you know, range of other people from from the base. And this party is organised from the bottom up. Uh, it was organised for the European Parliament elections in Spain, uh, and it got, I think, 8% and, and five or six seats. Uh, but since then, it's come out at top of the polls, uh, in, in, in several polls in Spain, uh, faced with a, a corruption crisis of dramatic proportions in both of the main political parties and drawing on a great dissatisfaction with politics. And I think it has a lesson elsewhere. So you say it's organised from the bottom up. Can you describe how it works, the, the way in which it organises itself, the way in which it develops policy? Well, they have policy circles and they have gatherings at the localities uh, uh, where they have a, a, an agenda set and a, a very large input of new, the new membership that's coming, coming into this. They have a big debate because it's happened so rapidly. Uh, this actually has been quite an effective way of organising and it's pooled towards the centre of the party, which is dominated by a group of academics, left-wing academics, influenced to some extent by Latin American radicalism. Uh, in Madrid, uh, they've had to decide whether they want a leadership of the party and how to incorporate these kind of inputs from below. And they're making their way very effectively in both in media terms and in a kind of inventive ad hoc uh, way of organising themselves, which is very attractive. Paddy, uh, is this significant? 
Well, I think one of the interesting things about the European elections this year was that the way in which uh, my colleagues in the media were concentrating on the growth of the Eurosceptical right and that they that they described the uh, the elections in terms of, of the growth of people like Nigel Farage, the National Front in, in France. In fact, the, the sections which made the most gains in, in the European elections were on what it could be described as the hard left, and, and this, of which Syriza and uh, the, the um, Podemos organization form part. In fact, in, in, in Germany too, there's the growing strength of, of uh, Die Linke. And these are real phenomenon um, in, in uh, European politics now. They're very important, and they are articulating a, a view that has to be taken seriously. I was struck by how recently uh, a very distinguished Financial Times columnist who would normally be associated with conservative economics uh, said that the only people who understood the business of debt forgiveness were the, were the people of, of Syriza and Podemos. Yeah, I, that's a very central point, it seems to me. In work that I've been doing in this, I'm distinguishing between uh, system integration at the level of the Eurozone and economic policy in, in the EU and social inter, uh, integration uh, of the so, social bases and the political forces involved. And there's increasingly a contradiction between the two. Well, you explain mm. something about what you mean by that, by those two terms. I mean that here is a system being put together for surveillance, for budgetary balance, for control uh, of, 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 of national budgets at the at the European level in the, in the Eurozone a deepening uh, institutional framework within the Eurozone, and yet an increasing disconnect between that and uh, the social basis of politics at national level. Uh, to some extent, these new forces on the left we're talking about represent the articulation of this contradiction. I think there's a populist right-wing manifestation of it on, you know, on the right that uh, represents something similar. And in the middle of this, we have the hollowing out and fragmentation of the classical party systems. So a, a figure often quoted is that in Britain, 95% uh, of people voted either Conservative or Labour, you know, in the 1950s. The figure is now down to nearly 60%. And you've got this extraordinary uh, election coming up in Britain where you'll have the fragmentation on both left and right, which is going to affect the outcome. I think, and I think very interestingly, uh, if we look at, at what's happened in Ireland, when you see the rise of, of the independents and, and small parties, uh, one of the things that I think is very dangerous in our, in our uh, commentary and our uh, attempt to understand what's going on is the fact that we don't distinguish within these groups what, what are the various strands of, of political thought there. Our, our pollsters find it very difficult to distinguish between uh, the, 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 those who would support the, the hard left or the, even the, the moderate left that Sinn Féin might rep represent and those who are sort of political reformers or Lucinda Craysonites. Uh, and what we really got to do is dig down into the, po the politics of people who support uh, the different forces. We don't really understand what's going I, on. I, but I wonder, Paul, you mentioned uh, in the context of Podemos, you mentioned Sinn Féin, and I just wonder if that's really uh, useful, because uh, in a way the the kind of organisational difference that you describe uh, with Podemos is very stark. Where Sinn Féin is a very, very disciplined and actually rather conventional political party in many ways. Yeah. And in some ways it is actually the uh, some of these independents, perhaps in Ireland, that might be a, a close comparison. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly the top-down and centralised uh, nature of Sinn Féin is dramatically different to the Podemos phenomenon. But on the other hand, their consolidation in, for example, the Dublin working class and elsewhere where they gained, you know, the support over the last several years is very is very clear cut and, and it's going it's a could change fundamentally the party system here in the same way that some of these other parties coming through elsewhere in Europe have the potential to change the traditional cleavages in the party system. So are we close then to a tipping point where you could see Syriza in power in Greece and Podemos perhaps somewhere near power or, or, or in power with somebody else in Spain and where and, and what kind of an impact is that going to have on the European politics or the politics of the EU? going to be shocking uh, in Germany, for example. There's a great complacency about this in Germany. No checks will be written, no no transfers. And some of these parties responding to this say, well, in that case, the euro is simply dysfunctional for us. Uh, and if, if necessary, we'll get, we'll get out of it. Now, some of them in Syriza are, are softening their, their line on, on the euro. They want to see uh, you know, structural reform rather than uh, withdrawal. Uh, one could see some glimmerings of a similar thing in, in Sinn Féin, it seems to me, and they are in the same group in the European Parliament, but this is very unpredictable territory, and a lot depends on, if these, this happens, uh, how the wider system responds. And uh, it's not, it doesn't, it, it, particularly the creativity of German policymakers is very much uh, uh, short, you know, shortcoming in this area. Uh, my own uh, turning point for 2014 uh, is the election of Narendra Modi as Prime Minister of India in May. And he was, uh, for some years before his election, something of an international pariah because of his uh, background as, uh, as a hard Hindu nationalist and also his tolerance and toleration of extremist Hindu violence in Gujarat. But he presented himself as being uh, a pragmatist a, uh, who was going to introduce business-friendly reforms to the Indian economy. But in fact, since his election, he's been much more bold in terms of foreign policy and moving very quickly. First of all, uh, his pariah status has been lifted uh, miraculously and immediately, certainly by the Americans. Not only uh, this was a man who until recently was banned from entering the United States. Now in January, President Obama is going to Delhi to lead the Republic Day celebrations there. So that's uh, a rift that has healed. Uh, his first steps were to visit the regional allies and friends, Japan particularly, where he has a certain uh, affinity with uh, Shinzo Abe, another nationalist, another something of a, a strong man who's majoring on economic reform. He also packed out stadiums in Sydney. He's moved to uh, resolve some border conflicts, uh, notably with Bangladesh. And he seems to be um, asserting a policy which is quite cautious towards China, but is nonetheless building strength and building alliances in a way that's quite welcome to some of his neighbours. So it seems to me that if uh, he succeeds, and he at the moment is extremely popular, he's exceptionally popular in India, uh, if he actually succeeds in uh, consolidating his power, as he's seeking to do through regional elections, and if uh, he succeeds economically, then he could be a transformative figure in that region. I think one of the interesting things about... Um Modi's role is is that it's quite like strong men in 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 other countries. I, I think of of Israel and and other other countries which have deep rooted political conflicts, and where it seems that it's the person 
if you like, on the extreme, who is most capable of resolving some of the problems. If his Hindu nationalism, you, you, you might have thought, was actually the worst starting point for, for an improvement in relations with Pakistan. And yet, precisely because he's coming from there, he can bring people with him, he can bring the party with him. Having said that, I, I do think that there's still an awful lot of doubts about uh, uh, Modi uh, and and his relationship to Hindu, Hindu extremism. The RSS uh, faction of the is still very much part of his party. Uh, they've been involved in, in forcible conversions of, of Muslims, and there is rising uh, tension. Uh, a lot of Muslims fear uh, Modi still and the BJP. Uh, in, in Kashmir, uh, it was a very interesting phenomenon. In, in elections recently, a very high turnout of, of local uh, Muslim voters determined that the BJP would not get a hold in Kashmir. Uh, the, the, the Hindu voters, by and large, were voters who'd, uh, who had left Kashmir, who exiled to, to, uh, uh, to Delhi and were allowed to vote in, in, in exile. Uh, and th their voting prompted, as I say, a very strong reaction from Muslims. What you say is absolutely true. I was in Delhi uh, a few weeks ago and there it was noticeable that uh, there were fears among the minority of people who weren't enthusiasts for, uh, for Modi. There were fears of this return to what they would call communalism and, uh, and, and particularly among wealthier Muslims, many of whom are now speaking openly about getting out of India and moving elsewhere. Paul Gillespie? Um, I'd be more interested in the, or I know more perhaps about the regional consequences. The, I mean, for years, India was more passive uh, than active in, in, in South Asia. Uh, and that reason, as the uh, security challenges were stoking up in East Asia and Southeast Asia, and the Americans with their pivot back towards Asia, as they, you know, it's quite well uh, established now, how effective it's been is another matter, uh, all, of course, to do with relations with China and emergent China. And to some extent, Modi is, is picking up slack that was there, perhaps, uh, in geopolitical terms in the region. And I think it's that it, one, you know, and that's, there's plenty to be done that's quite constructive along the lines that you suggest, and that would be welcome in the region. So it's very interesting to see the Americans, for example, beginning to focus in on this and the opportunities that it sets up for them. Uh, one to watch. And finally, and briefly, to predictions for 2015. Paddy Smith, your prediction? Well, my prediction is is very simple, and it's absolutely c correct. There will be there will be an election in Britain. The result of the election is now something which is completely impossible to predict. There's five different forces, political forces, all pushing in different directions, all increasing and decreasing their their relative strengths, and uh, so it's it's impossible to determine who will come out of the election on top. So it, make it, a prediction. Well. Uh, um, a malign prediction is is that the the Tories will emerge with a in, in a minority position, depending on UKIP as as a majority, and will push the country towards uh, uh, what's been called Brexit, which is the exit from the European Union. Uh, that I think is the worst possible uh, outcome. And do you think it's the most likely? I couldn't simply couldn't say, Paul. I think there are very interesting glimmerings uh, in Russia and in Germany and elsewhere around Europe uh, that the, the of the dangers of uh, bre breaking 
the links between Europe and Russia, I think that you you may find, uh, and I would I would predict uh, pretty strenuous efforts on both sides next year to reach some kind of deal uh, on Ukraine, and uh, we might be surprised at how constructive that would be. And my prediction is that Hillary Clinton will face a strong challenge from the left in the Democratic primary, and that challenge will come from Elizabeth Warren. My thanks to Paul Gillespie and Patrick Smith, and that's all from this edition of Worldview. From my producer, Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer, Gary White, and from me, Dennis Staunton, a very happy new year. <laughs>